before we start this evening, I really want to thank the choir for helping getting things ratcheted up in the spirit tonight. Thank you very much. It was very inspirational to sit there and listen to the hymns. <clears throat> Let's bow together in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it's with deep appreciation that we look back over 60 years of blessings that we have received at Eastern Camp, many of us for the greater part of that. And we're just so thankful, Lord, to been partakers of it. And at the same time, we we express our expectation this evening in looking not backward, but looking forward, setting our sights on Salem. And pray, Father, that thy spirit would bless us this evening as we look into thy word and look for inspiration of thy spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, 60 years of Eastern Camp, you know, I, I took a few moments to try to recall myself some of the thrilling sermons we've heard in those times, the captivating topics that we've heard about. And there are, there are about seven or eight that came to my mind. Others of you probably have a better memory than I do. But, you know, can you remember the, the stories of plane crashes and shipwrecks? of snakebite, of AIDS, current events, the end times, and many, many cries from the cross. We stand actually in a great heritage thinking back over what we've experienced. This evening, though, we're not going to look back, as one might think, on an anniversary like we have. We're going to look forward and ask ourselves this simple question. What shall we be doing in between this moment and the time when the Savior comes to claim his bride? What will we be up to? What will we be involved in? What will occupy our attention and our energies. The Lord has given me a, a line through Scripture this evening, and <clears throat> it turns out that last evening, Brother, I first thought that Brother Jim kind of scooped my verse, but actually, we agreed with each other that in the spirit of Christian charity and love, we will share the verse. But no, actually, the verse was given to me as a starting point. Brother Jim made a few comments about it, but I would like to read uh, again from Proverbs 4.18. It might be of interest to some of you to know that this verse, Proverbs 4.18 happens to be the inscription on the tombstone of Brother Furley. But the path of the justice is the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. And after we read a verse like this, the question that we're sort of all bid together to ask is, what is needed for that light to shine more and more? 
when you read the verse, the, the verse is very certain about what is going to happen. It's like maybe the kind of you know, possibility that maybe the light is going to shine more and more. The verse says the light will shine more and more. You see, God has a plan to let the light shine. And our job is to humbly bow our knees before him and ask him, Father, what's my part? What is our part? What is the part of this church in letting that light shine more and more and more? So, you know, when we have questions about such things, you know, what do we do? But we go to the Lord. And I went to the Lord and I asked him, Father, help me see in your word what is needed for the light to shine more and more. And a verse came to me, actually, in the same book of the Bible. It's brought to my attention, if you would care to turn there with me, in Proverbs 29. By the way, I should mention here that there's a few verses that we're looking up that are leading up to the main text, but this is sort of the Spirit's meandering with our thoughts through the Bible. Proverbs 29, 18 we find a really, really impressive verse in part A of this verse where it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. From time to time, there are believers that ask the question, you know, what is the vision for the church? Where are we going? Where do we have our mind's eyes set? Well, To be honest with you, rather than uh, any one of us trying to concoct a vision or a place or a plan, it's always wise for us to look in Scripture and see what is the heavenly vision, what is the, the biblical vision of where we should be looking. Now, I can imagine there might be some among you that are very suspicious about the fact that a vision would be all that's required for the light to shine more and more. I could see somebody asking, surely there's more to it than a vision that's needed. Well, I really don't think that is the case, actually. I would like you to turn with me to one of the few examples in Scripture that we have of a vision, and you tell me about the power of this particular vision. I'm looking in the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 7. I think Brother Jim mentioned something about this chapter last night, but not these verses. If you look at the, the, the closing verses to this chapter, it records the trial and the martyrdom of Stephen. And, of course, we're all thrilled when we see these verses, when his doom was basically secured, where it says in verse 54, And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Okay, now envision this. They're biting him. And while they're biting Stephen, the Bible says, 
But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then it says what they did to him and they cried out and they closed their ears and they dragged him out and they stoned him. And the closing verse of the chapter says, and he kneeling down. We get the impression that he still is focused on the vision. Through this whole ordeal, he is focused on this vision. And he says, and he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this into the ch- th- their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We read this account in Scripture, and we are clearly led to believe that there are visions that God's children can have that will transcend their martyrdom, that will transcend all else they experience and in essence set the course for all that we do and all that we are in our very name. We read in the New Testament in the epistles of Paul, of John, and Peter, and we all get the same feeling when we're reading these epistles that these men, when they wrote down the words, were driven by something more universal, more global, something that was a powerful force in their life. And when they wrote down particular words, particular letters, this is only one small part of the driving force that was behind all their energy and all their being. And we can read from time to time in the writings of Paul, John, and Peter, where they make reference to certain visions or certain images that they have in their mind's eye that are incredibly powerful to them, that, you know, in essence, provide the fuel for them to overcome great adversities. The vision becomes the azimuth on the horizon which sets their course. And in simple faith, they embrace the vision and it spurns them on to increasing devotion. Catch a part of the vision. Right now, standing in heaven, clothed in glory and majesty. He's the Lamb of God, now crowned the King of Kings. And in his precious blood, we have pardon. And we stand now forgiven. He's made us his people to reign with him eternally. And the beings are giving him honor, giving him glory, giving him praise. Jesus is worthy 
the Lamb has overcome. Albert Einstein once said that imagination is more important than knowledge. When we look in the Revelation, we can agree that seeing the vision, the allegorical way that the Revelation lays out for us what is going to happen in many ways is more powerful than if it were some sort of teaching epistle. There are two parts of the Revelation that I would like to look at this evening that give us information about how God thinks of us. And the part we are to play in his view in the vision of his kingdom that is to come. The first is in Revelation chapter 5. I'd like to read 10 verses from Revelation 5. And I want to mention before reading these verses that this is just my personal view But I believe that the revelation is much more an allegory than it is prophetic. It was given to us to create a vision. And the vision that we see in Revelation is made to bless us and to empower us. It's actually not clear when all these things are going to take place In fact, in many ways, they might be taking place right now, if it is indeed an allegory. Because once we get out of this space-time continuum, all of time can happen in a fraction of a second. And it's tough for us to talk about the past, the present, and the future in a time frame that is very different from our own. So we're reading this now, and we might be inclined to believe that this is sometime in the future. But I would suggest that we cannot be so sure that this is in the future. What we're going to read about right now could very well be taking place in a way in this instance. From Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book. 
and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand that sat upon the throne, excuse me, out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And has made unto our gods kings and priests. And we shall reign on the earth. What an incredible vision of the authority of the Lamb to open the seals. And this vision ends saying that God has raised kings and priests and we are to reign. We're to reign. The way God's church will reign is, of course, not political. And it has nothing to do with power. There's no coercion. There's not even particular skills and gifts that are given to those that reign. Only his authority. And I believe, as heaven in many ways starts already now, that God means for his children and his church to reign now. Well, it's going to be a different kind of kingdom because most won't even recognize that God's chosen bride is reigning. You see, it's happening on a different plane. When the Bible teaches us that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spirits and things in high places, there is a certain hierarchy of things that are going on in a different realm that are separate from the tangible sight, six senses that we sense here. And God wants us to reign. That is the vision that he's given us. I believe that it's time for the church, his bride, to embrace the vision. The vision that the Lamb has overcome and has been given to us, spiritual authority. 
to divide his power and to reign. We're called to reign with him. And it's time for the church to take her place. It's time now for the church to stand tall. Time for the church to set her shoulders back. This is not a time to cower. This is not a time to fear. There is nothing to fear. Because by God's authority, we've been called to reign. It is the time for the church to set her chin straightway on the vision and to advance more and more unto the perfect day. Sure, there are dangers up ahead. In us living out the vision, it will be dangerous. It may even be deadly. But nothing will dissuade us in our resolve to follow the vision. Our devotion to our Heavenly Father means something to us. And it's not something that can easily be stolen. Not something that we will easily be distracted from. As we try to teach the church what the Bible says about the way, the deceptions, the dangers we always have to remember that fundamentally at the heart of this vision is a message of overcoming and a message of victory. And we also will not be intimidated by the world that's around us. We will take courage and fight ye like men. I'm reminded of, of an event that happened down the road here a few miles. As the Civil War was coming to an end and the Union Army was working their way down toward Richmond, lots of bloody fighting that was going on. And I, I remember having read an account of General Grant going to speak with his adjutants and again, he heard them talking about Robert E. Lee and that fox that Robert E. Lee was. And Robert E. Lee is going to do this and Robert E. Lee is going to do that and we better watch out for this and what about that. And General Grant got frustrated with his officers and he snapped out at them, you ought to be worrying about what you're going to be doing to him and not what he's going to be doing to you. well, you know what? Maybe that's some good advice for the bride. Maybe as we follow this vision, we should be more consumed with what the Spirit of God is going to do to the evil one than we are afraid of what the evil one is going to try to do to us. Because the Lamb 
has overcome. And the light will shine more and more to the perfect day. Just a little bit more about the overcoming. Part of, a, part of the, a different view of the revelation in chapter 17 would like to read verses 10 to 14. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was, and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seventh, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. This part of the vision is talking about you. It's talking about you and me. For those that are with the Lamb are the called. You are the chosen. You are the faithful. God could have chosen others. There are many that don't have the blessing or the right to be among the chosen. But God made you and you and you and you raised into the knowledge of the truth. You were born in the time and place and in the space you were. And you were called. You are the called. You are the chosen. You are the faithful. And you move forward more and more and more. And more to the perfect day. You're called to testify of Him, chosen to bear witness of Him, faithful in spreading the gospel 
of peace and of love. And between this moment and the time that the Lord shall return to claim his own, you will mobilize. You will fill the need between this time and then. I know you. You will mobilize to devotion. You're going to mobilize to serve. You will mobilize, be mobilized to compassion. I know your intent. I know the intent of God's bride. You want to be a soldier of the cross. You want to be a follower of the Lamb. Nobody wants to abandon Him. No one wants to betray Him. No one wants to disappoint Him. You're ready to close ranks. You're ready to stand in the gap. You are ready to give all for Him. And you know that in order for you to fulfill God's vision for the church, that your devotion will need to grow. You are devoted. You have devotion. But you know in the same regard that for the times that lie ahead, your devotion will need to increase. And you are setting yourself on the right path so that your devotion will grow. You know that devotion is not the end. You know that holiness is not the end. Holiness and devotion are a means to a different end. They are a means to bear witness. It's sort of like the boot camp training that one needs to go to to eventually become a soldier. But the boot camp is not the fighting, it's the preparation for when you really fight. And growing in devotion is simply the, fu the fuel and the discipline in order to be about the other tasks in the vision. You remember and you know that you are the called. You wake up every morning and close your eyes every night remembering that you are the chosen. You go throughout the tough times and the difficult experiences knowing that you are the faithful. I know you and I know what you want. And I know what you're prepared to sacrifice. 
I know what you're prepared to forego. I know what you are prepared to endure. And what you are prepared to occupy with so that you can take a part in the vision. I know that you're going to commit all as you follow the rabbi. I know that you know that a year is enough time for you to double your biblical knowledge. Whatever you think you know about the Bible, you know that a year is enough time so that next year at camp, you are twice as skilled in his word as you are now. You will be devoted to his word. You will be devoted to prayer. You know that these things are absolute fundamentals in the shining, increasing more and more unto the perfect day. You know that it's important to use his word skillfully and you will apply yourself to it. as one who has been called. You will pray as one that's chosen. You will mobilize to serve. You know that your service to the Lamb is not an option. You know that it's a privilege. You know that however you serve right now in whatever means, it is yet possible for you to serve more and serve better than however you are currently engaged. You know that the harvest is plenteous and the laborers are few. You know that the time is short. You know that the days will be long and the hill will be steep. But you're prepared to step in. You know that when you hear the church bells ring, and the brethren gather from far and near to listen and learn, to pray, to share, to show concern. To take one day in seven. To open up your heart, to rejoice in him and to praise him. You'll take advantage of every single opportunity that you've been given. Because you can feel the Lamb's pleasure when you do. You chose to serve because you're called. 
and you're chosen, and you'll be faithful. The need within the household of faith to serve is great. And the service of many is required. But the need outside the household of faith is greater. Many small churches struggle to find the servants they need to do the normal things that need to be done in a church. Larger churches, of course, have more going on, so they also need more people, but they have more people. And you know that it is very likely some of the ministries that you are being called to to live out the vision are within your personal and private walk of life. And you will find those ministries. You will engage in the work and you'll be blessed in the service. You will pick your vocations well. We're not going to be wasting our time on vocations that really don't have any eternal purpose. I know you. You are not going to fall into temptation, or rather said, you will resist the temptation to do the dance around the golden calf as the world around us does. But you know what they think. You know what they want. You know how the drum gets beat. And you say, no. That's not what I want. You say to yourself, I know that I can't serve God and serve money. It's got to be one or the other. And you've chosen God because you know you're the called. You are the chosen. You are the faithful. Many of you, I believe, are going to be like the Cambridge Seven. Have you heard of the Cambridge Seven? C.T. Studd, Montague Beauchamp, S.P. Smith, A.T. Pole Hill Turner, D.E. Host, C.H. Pole Hill Turner, W.W. Castles. More than 130 years ago, these men were studying for promising careers. They were all accomplished athletes, some of them very, very special. C.T. Studd hailed from Repton and Eton 
And before he studied at Cambridge, he was known throughout Great Britain as being the most promising cricketer in his age. And the whole nation was looking with pride and with expectation for him to take up the mantle at Cambridge to be the captain of the team. Traveling throughout Great Britain or the kingdom, the United Kingdom, representing the Union Jack on the cricket field. And he was good. The expectation was clear that when he was done with his studies, he would become a professional bowler. Is that right, Brother Doug? Bowler. C.T. Studd, while at Cambridge, was invited to the meetings of the Christian Union. And he not only found a faith there, but the experience that he made with Christ totally changed his life. And it wasn't just him. Five others from that cricket team found something more important when believers gathered to read the word and to pray. Two of their most famous crew members at Cambridge also got caught up in this shenanigans from their view. And in 1881-1882, the Cambridge Seven announced that together they would be leaving England after their studies and going to China. Some of you are going to be just like them. Not that you will go to the regions beyond, but you will have opportunities to have promising careers in all kinds of fields. But you will choose to apply yourself to a career that can make a greater contribution to the vision. Because you know that you were the called. You were the chosen. You were the faithful. You will mobilize to compassion. You know that you're blessed beyond measure. You know that you have resources to share. You know that the most basic Christian act is to show love and to be willing to share. You know the things that break the heart of the Lamb.
And you will allow your heart to be broken by the same things. You're glad to respond to the church bells when the congregation is called to gather at whatever holy hall you gather in. But you are not content to live within earshot of church bells. You choose to dwell in a rescue shack a yard from hell. God bless you. God keep you. God make his face to shine upon you. Partakers of the vision, you who are the called, you who are the chosen, you who are the faithful. Amen.